Wow, Joe, what a random series of events. I had no idea what was going on, especially when you cut at the end there. And yet here we are again, talking more about shit and nonsense. Yeah, you know, it was just kind of a, an abrupt cut. It didn't really make any sense. And it seems like this whole, like this whole two-episode arc that we're doing this month is basically just an exercise in absurdism. That's right. And we also need to record Multiverse of Madness 2. Ah, yes, which we are doing later than the thing that we are doing now. That's right. Earlier than, Presently. later than. Randomness. Yes. Wow. <laughs> if we publish these episodes in the wrong order... This bit is going to make no sense. Well, that's why it's random. Ha! So random. Oh, so anyway, random. let's jump back into randomness. I mean, we'll add a touch of how randomness lets us, lets us play in sort of like a weird and absurd way. Do we always even need to construct narrative? Damn right. And meaning? I don't think so. Let's go. Let's find out. On this episode of Dungeons and Dialectics. Welcome, traveler. Welcome, traveler, to Dungeons and Dialectics. Ooh, I kind of like... Maybe we'll have you record that, too, so that we can have... We can alternate. ...different openings. Welcome, traveler, yeah, yeah. to Dungeons & Dialectics, the synthesis of tabletop role-playing and RPGs and philosophy, too, to boot, and theology. Welcome, Traveler, to Dungeons & Dialectics, the synthesis of tabletop role-playing games, philosophy, and theology. So the second point that you made... Oh, I'm could it all be random? <laughs> what if you did a game that was all random encounters? I think that the answer is that it could be meaningful, but you're going to need to like be trying really hard to forge a story by your own efforts, you know what I mean? You're going to have to try to take possession of the of authorship in a way that normally isn't isn't obvious to to people. People often think that meaning's given to them and that like they're they're co-authoring what happens to them along with some sort of pre-established order of meaning. But if mm -hmm. everything is completely random, you really need to be a sort of a creator of value as Nietzsche would say. What, is, what does Nietzsche say, mean when he says He's got this threefold structure of like stages on life's way, and I'm not going to get into the content of that except that the, the final level is basically, he, just, he compares it to being like a child, and it's a sort of playfulness with rules. And the idea is that when you really are sort of self-made, self-authored, <laughs> overman, you know, dude. <laughs> the ubermensch. The ubermensch. You can't see these things, meaning, rules, whatever, as being given to you from the outside. You need to sort of mm -hmm. take mastery over it and create it and self-legislate it. So if you were confronted with radical randomness or meaninglessness in the sense of not being given meaning, not like nihilistic meaninglessness, um, mm -hmm. you could either give up on the project of finding meaning in whatever... Or you could set forth and try to create the meaning and sort of uh, forge it out of what is being given to you, in this case, meaningless random events. Mm -hmm. And so Nietzsche, is Nietzsche admitting that life is meaningless? His great project is the struggle against nihilism. Mm -hmm. So he sees our like modern 
well, modern in a broad sense, right? Society is sort of culminating in nihilism. That's what the death of God really amounts to is that, Mm -hmm. okay, um, we've gone through this whole project of enlightenment and modernity. And in the process, we've sort of killed this idea that all of the things we value can be given to us from the outside. You know, Mm -hmm. there's no, we're not accountable to anything really outside of us except ourselves. The question is when you're in that situation, what are the conditions by which we can find meaning, right? Finding is actually the wrong metaphor. What are the conditions under which we can then be creating the meaning that we're seeking rather than caving into despair or trying to go backwards and and receive it Mm -hmm. from something external? Got it. Because Nietzsche like sees God and religion as idols, if I'm not mistaken. Well, you know, I actually had a professor who was a Christian and Mm -hmm. he basically said to me once, you know, Nietzsche really doesn't ultimately give a damn about idiosyncratic religious beliefs of like ordinary people taken in themselves like he doesn't care about the christian god being dead in the normal sense he cares about the philosopher's god being dead namely the rational source of everything that we value uh-huh so he just he just doesn't, doesn't care, care about what about whether like so for example i think a lot of people when when we first get into like theology or philosophy we we want to ask the question of like oh does god exist or not or right oh yeah he god. doesn't care about whether god re- exists ultimately no he wants us to be uh, vivacious, meaningful agents living mm-hmm. sort of satisfying lives as creators of our own lives. He wants us to sort of become authors of ourselves, basically, to the degree that that's possible. I mean, it's um, it's not clear that like ultimate authorship is actually attainable, but that's not the point, really. Mm-hmm. So Nietzsche thinks that God is dead and rejects the nihilism that is often associated with that like right. realization, but also uh, rejects going back to that like system of understanding meaning as given to us by God or some sort of external. That's thing. right. I don't think Nietzsche would have any issue really with a lot of, frankly, modern theologians who are doing like death of God theology or any of these things that are in yeah. many ways inspired by him. He wants mm-hmm. to take it umbrage with, or really it's not even taking umbrage with it because when he says it's dead, what he means is this image of like the mm-hmm. transcendent being who's dictating meaning yeah. to us is is no longer going to work for us. That's really what he's yeah. getting at. I mean, there's quite a few people who do death of God theology who even want to say, I mean, I don't know that much about this. I've read a little bit of it. Mm-hmm. But some of these people want to say, yeah, God doesn't exist or isn't real. But, you know, that doesn't mean that, I don't know, they don't believe in God in some sense. It's like there's there's really complicated issues here about the semantics of belief and, and what you might mean when you say God doesn't exist. But you could be, I think, a mm-hmm. Christian or an atheist, basically. I would actually I would actually agree with that because for me, to be Christian means to follow Christ. Right. And I believe that you can follow Christ without being without believing in God, right. for example, or God in like some kind of more traditional theistic sense that doesn't mean you cut out like the supernatural elements of the story because i think the story in the context of the story the supernatural elements are important because they point to what god cares about or what we as christians should be caring about so when jesus like heals the sick we understand from that whether we believe that they were actually healed or not (laughs) and presumably an atheist christian would believe that the miracle did not take place whether we believe that it happened or not we understand from the story oh God cares about our like physical well-being. God cares about our health. When God feeds pe- when Jesus feeds people, we see oh God cares about fe- feeding the hungry. We as Christians if we're following Christ, we should feed the hungry. We should visit people in prison. We should free the captives. We should 
flip over tables at the money changer. Damn place. right. So what you're saying is the supernatural elements can have a narrative function that's important such that we shouldn't do the Jefferson move of like cutting all of them. Exactly. Exactly. Which he does because he's like, oh, Jesus had some nice philosophy. But that's sort of like this kind of like enlightenment idea that we try and separate the story and the narrative elements from the like quote unquote message. And that's why early philosophers like Plato will tell their, explain their philosophy through a story. This is partly because Plato was a playwright before a philosopher that then in the enlightenment, it becomes like unfashionable to do that. So you have to write like these really long. Exactly. That's a quick aside. I want to talk about two um, concepts. I mean, We've kind of transitioned now to talking about our, like our real lives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let's recede, recede back into our our characters. Well, I, I had a real life comment I wanted to make. Actually, oh, never mind. That, no, we're not going to. We're going to go further. We're going to go deeper. Expose your expose your if heart. You th- like this is a kind of a locus of meditation upon the degree to which you are an author of your life, because intuitively we often think a we're individuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, B, we are the authors of our actions. And C, you know, um, we're basically morally responsible for everything we do and all the and and D, you know, and there's like a million corollaries of all this. So you, you get the idea. But yeah. most of what we do, in fact, is a function of the values we have, by and large, or at least the values radically constrain the options that are open to us at some time. Mm-hmm. And there's different kinds of luck, which is a sort of randomness, that enter into this. And I mean, we're all kind of aware of this, but we often aren't attending to it when we are thinking about ourselves and our actions. Yeah. There's sort of constitutive luck, which is just the luck that I have uh, that's to do with my being born in certain circumstances, you know, in which I'm born with the certain cognitive capacities I have and blah, 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 right? Things could be better or worse, but I have what I have, and that's kind of a not something that's really up to me. Mm-hmm. And so it's random, even if it's somehow determined it's random in the sense that it's not up to me. So random is kind of like there's multiple senses of random, right? Mm-hmm. And then if you think that there, if you have, if you think that you have like robust alternate possibilities when you're acting, mm-hmm. there's also a sense in which there's present luck. Like let's say that at a time T1. I have like two or three options available to me. And, you know, there's some reasons counting in favor of doing option one, executing option one, some reasons counting in favor of option two, and so on. Let's say I choose option one. Mm-hmm. If it's actually indeterministic at the time, such that my reasons don't determine what I'm going to do. Yeah. If I were to, so like, let's say I do one. If I were to roll back the clock, if there are certain probabilities associated with what I'll do, Mm-hmm. then it's really a matter of luck that I chose option one rather than option two and three. It seems like if I rolled it back, mm-hmm. eventually I would choose option two or option three. Yeah. So there's a sense in which there's an ineradicable randomness in if, you know, we aren't really like determined to do what we do in mm-hmm. um, acting as, as we act. So that prima facie is a difficulty with respect to meaning or authorship in our lives. Because when we think, at least intuitively, I think, when we're thinking about meaning, we're thinking, oh, this is the path that I have forged for myself. Mm -hmm. And this is my story that I'm in possession of that basically is attributable to me. 
Mm-hmm. But if there's like this huge amount of randomness about what I do such that I have less control over how things happened, the sense that it's really attributable to me is mm-hmm. lessened. It's like a matter of chance that it was attributable to me in this way rather than being like thoroughly explicable through me. I see. I see. So the idea that we want to believe that we are in control of our like narrative, but there are things that are outside of I our mean, control. I mean, I don't know anything about the concept of grace, but mm-hmm. I think uh, at least one connotation that I sometimes hear when people speak of this is this idea of accepting with like a grateful heart or something that one is living the way one is. And the only way you can be grateful really that your life is going a certain way is if you recognize that it's not thoroughly and completely up to you. Mm. Now, that gratitude doesn't need to be toward a higher being in the traditional sense. I mean, it could be to your community. It could be to your family. It could be to, uh, you know, nature or whatever. But this is sort of like an anti-Nichan theme now. If you accept that you're not wholly and completely the author of your life in the way you want to be, then you have to, I think, meet that with a certain humility and gratitude. Mm. Or maybe like dread or something. I don't know. (laughs) That was the point that I was just about to say is that like, I think that gratitude is really, it's a great thing to have. And I think that, I mean, there've been like studies about this. Maybe I'll dig one up and science in the, in the show notes, but there've been studies about like, you know, people who live with gratitude who make an intentional effort to express or like reflect on gratitude, even this abstract, like gratitude, or I'm just grateful that this is the way that things are for me or that this has happened. They, they have like, they generally like enjoy life or they, they have more positive, um, like feelings. They feel more positive more of the time. But I think that there's a danger with like excessive, like just like default. Oh, gratitude is good because I think that there are a lot of situations in which gratitude is not an appropriate response. That's right. That's true. And especially when when we're talking about like random encounters, if I like round the corner, if I've been on one of those like imperceptible slopes, and I round the corner. And after fighting like a skeleton and some rats and thinking I'm hot shit at level one, I run into a hydra with like 10 heads. I'm not grateful. That's a very good point. I was implicitly uh, dragging in my own life, which is going, okay. And, (laughs) you know, so I am grateful for my life. Maybe I'm not, you know, gratitude, when we think of gratitude, there's a sense of orientation, like Mm. grateful to something or other. But also it might just be gratefulness in the sense that you're humble and you're humble with respect to it. You recognize you're not completely the author of it. Um, okay. That, I do with, think... With a positive feeling toward it. But many lives aren't good. <laughs> so <laughs> so yeah. those people aren't perhaps fully in control those of that. Those people. Those people out there who are suffering, yeah. you know, fuck them, right? You know, not, <laughs> sucks to suck. Sucks, sucks to be them, dude. Those people, <laughs> you know, maybe gratitude isn't the right way to meet it. Well, I think, but I mean, it's still random saying, or luck based or whatever. Yeah, I think instead of saying those people, we should you recognize people. that <laughs> we should say you people because we we're talking, we're talking to them. them. We know that our listeners are suffering because they listen to us. That's talk. a good point. But that like all of us suffer at different points in yes. our life and to like different degrees and not me. You know, we don't want to play like oppression Olympics. Um, well, I'm not but, playing because I've never suffered before. <laughs> it wouldn't be fair and it wouldn't be like true to. To, like, say all suffering is basically equivalent, like, the suffering that I might face at the supermarket because they don't have any peanut butter or whatever 
and I like peanut butter a lot. Like that's like that might bum me out, but that's not like equivalent suffering. Well, to, so like I don't know people that are like victims of hate crimes because of their yeah. race or right. because of the discrimination that they face uh, from bigots, I should say. So in a certain sense to suffer can mean lots of things. Like mm-hmm. I might say this thing suffers change in the sense that it's mutable. Or, you know, a good example of like suffering that in theory is like kind of random is somebody who's, who's facing cancer, for example, because that's, that's something that's talking about. Ugh, what? Okay. I'll give you your example, but I, I have a broader point I was going to make, but give, give okay. me your example. I want to No, that's it. it. That just like, you know, it's a random thing. They have cancer. It happens and it leads to suffering. Okay. So what I was going to say, yeah, you're right. Cancer, not good. However, <laughs> Dungeons and Dialectics says. Was, cancer's cancer, not good. We're not, not getting good. political here, but cancer's not good. Um, yeah. So you're going to affect, you're going to offend the pro-cancer lobby, Matt. You got to back off. They've got deep pockets. Cancer, well, hey, cancer sometimes, you know, you never know. Give me money. Yeah. yeah. Sponsored by Marlboro. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so there's a sense in which to suffer means to be, to be able to undergo, right? To not be perfectly active with respect to oneself. So in a way that's like the condition of the possibility of all suffering in the stronger sense of like negative Mm -hmm. hardships. If I were perfectly present to myself and perfectly in control of, of everything, I wouldn't suffer in the sense of undergoing hardships. Like whenever I undergo a hardship, it's because I'm subject to some sort of thing over which I have imperfect control or no control. One way that we can then think about like, okay, I, uh, why some suffering might be worse than others. Well, this isn't like going to be the only way, but one way is when you have like histories of structural oppression that l- leaves people open to undergoing suffering and hardship, right? Undergoing change that they're not completely in control over, which is, uh, has negative, you know, valence that mm-hmm. other people aren't going to be subject to just, and that's a, going to be random for us insofar as like, it's not, I didn't control the, you know, history into which I was born and neither did anyone else, but we're, that's where we, we are. And so some people have mm-hmm. are capable of suffering more greatly and some people less. So just because mm-hmm. of the histories into which they're thrown. Yes. Which is not to say that human beings are not responsible for these, these systems or the history that has like led to this moment. Or that we don't now have like an ethical obligation, a moral obligation right. to work to undo those systems. Right. But just that, just because you're thrown into an ethical situation and so you are, have imperfect control over it that you didn't cause or right, and you're not the perfect cause of it doesn't mean you don't have ethical obligations to try to bring it about that that system is mm-hmm. eroded or, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, <clears throat> but one of the things that like a lot of people can sometimes find comfort in this is maybe the flip side of expressing gratitude is surrendering to the bad thing that is happening to you and just like recognizing, okay, this is shitty and terrible, but it's happening. And at this moment in time, there's nothing I can do. So I'm going to surrender. And whether that is a certain, like whether that's coming from some like theological position of, Oh, this is all God's plan which I, as a, as a Christian and a budding theologian, like, I don't believe that God's plan for us is to suffer. That would be a bad plan. 
but not to tell you how to do your job, God, but you could have. Well, I don't that like through. that from a theological. I mean, I'm not religious really, but from a theological yeah. perspective, I find that really suspect because it's just yeah. saying like, you dumb humans, you know, this is not something you can understand. So just accept it. That's yeah. that doesn't strike me as being religiously like acceptable, really. Yeah. Well, I, I would say I would argue that at least I don't think it's theologically sound, okay. but I can understand and appreciate that some people like that can be an expression of surrender that by relinquishing the ethical obligation to do something about it or like, or by giving up on, on like, you know, pushing to, to do something to like change the situation when it either is impossible or seems impossible. There is a certain sort of relief that can wash over people. This of course does not excuse the, like if there's um, if there are people that are causing this or people that are standing on the sidelines and allowing this to happen with with like, you know, if we're talking about like structural injustice or or like, you know, historic oppression, sometimes it's really tough to keep like constantly fighting and fighting and fighting against that. And so if somebody needs to take a break or if somebody stands back and says, you know, I just can't deal with this, I'm going to surrender mm-hmm. for now, whether it's like temporary or permanent. Like that's, I understand that response and that response does not excuse those of us that are benefiting from the systems of oppression. It doesn't mean that that's okay or that's how the system or that's how the world should be set up. Right. So. Are you okay? No, I have COVID. Still? After four months? (laughs) After four months, I still have COVID. It's because you keep going out of smoke. This disease really doesn't. doesn't So life may or may not be a series of random events. We are imperfect authors of what we do, but we can set, if you have a Nietzsche inclination, you can try to set as a goal being the author. Perhaps it would be an absurd goal. Yeah. I'm not sure to what degree it's attainable, but mm-hmm. it might be, even if absurd, it might still be worth pursuing. Well, you know, we've talked a lot about absurdism. Have we? We've sort of, we've danced, we've around, danced around absurdism. <laughs> absurdism. And I just want to, I want to, I want to drill down on this because wow. we've sort of, been operating under the assumption that it is better to have meaning. So whether that's in the game world that we sort of, and this whole podcast up to this point, all like 10 or 15 episodes, however many we've done, we've been talking about and giving out some like game advice every once in a while, based on the assumption that you want to create a game that has meaning or that has narrative or that is like fulfilling in that sense. But when we, and, and even in this, this episode, we're talking about, like, when you take random encounters, how do you turn randomness into, into meaning, into narrative, well, whether you're a player or a character? That's why I brought up Troika. It was meaningless and it was glorious. And now we're circling back, just like you said. I, what did I say? I know what I'm doing. Unlike I some know. listeners who have accused me of not doing enough prep, I know what I'm doing. Yeah. You know... <laughs> <laughs> that that not the the men, the men, the person who mentioned that mentioned this like three months like ago. Eight months ago, who knows if they still feel they that way? Will. After listening to like two episodes. Whatever. Anyway, look, I think that there isn't a correct answer to this, and it's going to be based on temperament to a certain degree. I mean, if you think that life is worth finding meaning in, you know, then you should go for it, brother. But if you want to to um, persist in sort of absurdity then uh, you could do that too Camus and I'm paraphrasing this says mm-hmm. something like the serious problem for philosophy is explaining to people why they shouldn't kill themselves 
Mm. Right. Or like yep. why people have good reason not to kill themselves, I, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And um, well, yeah. it's not clear that there is an answer that could be given to all people that would be like rationally compelling, you know, to anyone who mm. might ask the question. Yeah. Well, because because Camus is an absurdist philosopher and author. Existentialist absurdist kind of. Yeah. yeah. And he his point is that the world is absurd. It doesn't actually make sense. Random shit happens. And like, it really doesn't like, there is no way to make meaning out of it. And so you have sort of like, you have three options. One of them, as you mentioned, is suicide that you say life is meaningless. So I'm not, I'm not going to play the game anymore. I'm not going to participate. The second option is to ignore that life is meaningless and absurd and say, no, life is not absurd. I'm just going to pretend that it's meaningful in itself or something. And then the third option, which sounds a lot like the second option is to say life is absurd and I'm going to make the absurd choice of living anyway. Mm. And maybe I can construct meaning if I feel like that's something that's important to me, but it's sort of this. That's like your idiosyncratic project or something. Yeah. So like existentialism more broadly, Matt, you should correct me if I get this wrong. Okay. But existentialism more broadly is often thought of as life is meaningless, but we construct meaning out of it. Whereas absurdism as a more kind of specific branch of existentialist philosophy is saying you really can't construct meaning out of it and you just need to accept that. I would do whatever you feel like with that, but recognize that all your choices and all your attempts to construct meaning are in and of themselves absurd because you are trying to construct meaning out of something that has no meaning. I, I don't disagree with you. I would just qualify by saying that there are abs- there are existentialists who embrace this sort of absurdist position, but there are absurdists who are not existentialists. That's you a really could good... be an absurdist in the following sense. You could to say that life is meaningless is to have an apprehension of a concept of life, of living. It's, mm. it's, there's lots of apprehension in, in that judgment. I mean, it's a cognitive judgment about the way the world is. Yeah. You could find yourself completely at a loss to everything, such that you feel as though you can't form any judgments at all, and you could have practice sort of radical suspension of judgment mm-hmm. uh, and quietism about, about life and meaning um, without is, being an is, existentialist, arguably. Is quietism just the suspension of judgment? So yeah, quiet. I mean, that's the idea is like intellectual quietude. The mm-hmm. issues sort of disappear from your mind because you've suspended judgment over them, something like that. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, there are different kinds of quietism. There's like mystical quietism where you are suspending judgment or whatever, right, to invite a mystical experience of some sort of transcendent reality or, or something. Mm-hmm. But then there are people who just want to who treat the quietism as the end itself, not like a step on the way to the mystical experience. And this is why Troika, as we play the game, Mm -hmm. is a lot like that. Because the first adventure we did was them, the players trying to get from the bottom floor of the hotel to the top floor of the hotel. And and I died before we could get to the top floor. (laughs) He died. But one of our, one of our players, Mike was like, he was really playing the game. He was very smart. And he was clever. And he made it to the top of the hotel. And I'm like, all right, well, you're at the party now. And he's like, all right, where's the next hook for the, the plot? Where's the, where's the game? And I was like, I was like, this is the game. <laughs> you, you made it to the top. You're at the party. You and did. he's like, what? Yeah, the <laughs> second then, session we played, Mike said, like, we, so we fucked around for two hours. He said, <laughs> well, 
I'd really like to engage with these systems. <laughs> yeah. He said, somebody said, I really like the system. And Mikey, Mikey's like, yeah, I'd really like to play the game someday. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I would say that I'm not an existentialist, but mm-hmm. I am an absurdist probably in mm-hmm. this in the Beckett sense of being at a loss and you know, favor and quietude and these sorts of things. At least that's yeah. how I read Beckett. Anyway, mm-hmm. so for me, Troika is like the best because it's an mm-hmm. awesome aesthetic experience. But yeah. if you're a more traditional player, and I'm not saying this is wrong because this is just a different way of living. It's like a different yeah. temperament, you know. That's not going to be satisfying for you. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I'm told I'm told that pe- some people actually play Troika like it's a game. People play Troika like it's a game and there are items you can collect and like like things you can do in plots that you can engage with. I do think that the rules light nature. So when I say mm. rules light, it mean it's like Dungeons and Dragons has a lot of rules and it takes a lot of preparation to understand how to play the game and then to create yeah. the character to play the game and actually to play the game. But rules light games don't have as many rules and <coughs> so it's <coughs> God damn, Joey. I know, right. It's a much lower investment of time and effort to learn to play the game and to actually like play it. So if you don't get to use all your fancy toys, it's less of a bummer. Like if you play D and D and you don't get to like roll the dice or use your skills or attack, it's, it's kind of a bummer because you put a lot of time and energy and investment into absolutely making that. But with a rules light game, you can fuck around for two hours and it doesn't feel as much like, Oh, I didn't actually play the game unless you're, <laughs> unless you're unless Mike. You're Mike yeah. Much love to yeah. Mike. So could you have a game of D&D that was all random encounters? And have it be meaningful. And, it, and that would be absurd. And that would Yeah, be you know, it's interesting. Now I'm actually wondering. So earlier we asked, then, yeah, could you have all random encounters and have it be meaningful? Mm-hmm. But in a way, that's the wrong question. Or rather, it's a sub-question of the right question is like... Yeah, what a stupid question. Hey, one could have... It's really, really us. <laughs> We've grown so much in the past hour. You you could have a, a game that's just a set of random encounters, or you could have a life that's just a set of random encounters. Mm-hmm. B is that meaningful? C could it be meaningful? Does it need to be meaningful? And so on. So really, it's like a mm-hmm. plurality of sub questions yeah. about the importance of yeah. meaning in our lives. What is the value of having meaning in right like, out of randomness? I don't know. You know, uh, life's meaningless, and I don't care. Or I don't know. I don't know what's going on. I have no idea. I'm looking right into the microphone. There's no web camera. I have no idea <laughs> what's going on, people. I don't know what the hell's going on. I don't even know what I mean when I say I don't know what's going on. That's a good point. You know, my partner did say she was surprised that we don't actually have. We can't see each other while we do this oh. because apparently we have like some like chemistry or whatever that she was like, oh, it, like it sounds like you two are with each other, like looking at each other and talking yeah. to each other. Well, it's because we have this uh, married couple relationship. <laughs> if you remember from our episode of three months ago. Yeah, like eight, eight years ago. I, um, we're in love with each other. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. We're in love, yeah. but we're, we're we don't love or wait. Yeah. I don't know, something like that, that was, you know. I remember recording that, and that was one of the best bonus episodes we've ever done. I think it was the only good one, really. Yeah, that's okay, because the bonus episodes go up for free, so, like, you know. We it's can just there to, it's just filler, you know, it's just there to fill it out, <laughs> it's just make filler. it look like we're working hard on this. Yeah, working hard or hardly yeah, working. Right. So, you want to give us another, another just, like, quick wrap-up, and then we'll sign off? You want to get a, a little wrap? 
a little rap. Yeah, I want you to improvise a rap summarizing this session. Yo, no, I'm not going to do that. Thank, <laughs> Thank you. I was so scared. Yo, yo. Um, look, life, like the game, can be meaningful. But if you find that it's absurd, don't stress too much about it. That's my advice for the players and the DMs out mm-hmm. there. Maybe just roll with it. Roll with it. Let it be, as they used to say. Um, take what? Oh, there's a Bible quote about this. Like, you know, the, the flowers in the field don't worry about their raiments. So, uh, is that so it? So why should you? So why should you? Yeah. Yeah, so, but that's a totally different like philosophy. Well, I'm appropriating it. You should. You should go out of Ecclesiastes. Life, yeah, actually, that's a good point. Um, everything's meaningless. <laughs> Everything is. Everything is vanity. Everything's vanity. But vanity of vanities. All is vanity. All is vanity. But it doesn't matter, so don't worry about it. Yeah. I think that Maybe it's better. Perhaps life is better if we live in this way without clinging to meaning. Perhaps life will go better for you. Try it. Give it a try. Mm. Or maybe it doesn't really matter. Yeah, maybe it doesn't matter at all. I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea what's going on, like I said. This is our this is our question for our our, our listeners and our challenge to our listeners. It's if you're a dungeon master or if you're a player, you know, maybe why don't you try experimenting with a a session that is like totally meaningless and <laughs> see if that's yeah. see if it's fun. Yeah, it might be fun. Um, to, you might you might be surprised. Maybe your players will stop talking about you behind your back and saying what a shitty DM mm-hmm. you are if you do something interesting. Yeah. <laughs> something something artsy and avant-garde. Yeah, do an avant-garde session. Like uh yeah. you get shrunk down to barnyard animals or something. I don't know. Yeah. And let us know, like, you know, do your players, do your players resist this? Do they try to, as, um, as Camus says, do they try to make meaning out of the meaningless, or maybe they just like kill themselves because they're like, like if they quit the game, um, they're like we're never playing again. Um, you know, we didn't. Or do they accept the absurdity? Okay, so we've we've wrapped up. We've signed off. No, now we got to sign off. We got to say our now we got to sign off. All right. Um, We're still working on an unspecified catchphrase. <laughs> All right, folks, that was uh, that's our time. Now head on over to our Twitter page. Um, our Twitter page. Or oh no no, no. I got it, I got it I got it. All right, folks, that's our time. Why don't you click on the link in the description and go ahead and put the pay in Patreon? Or, yeah, or like uh, we could say like taker sleazy foshizy. That's a good one. It's a good little line. All right. All right. All right. All right. This was Matt. This was Joe. Take it sleepy for sleepy, sleepy. Now you know. Send me money. The catchphrase is just gonna get money. Send me money, sleazy style. Or take it sleazy. Just gotta keep adding. Soon, soon happens. Take it sleazy. See you next Tuesday. <laughs>